BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Ken Burns, the award-winning filmmaker known for telling America's stories of the Civil War, Thomas Jefferson, Vietnam, and his latest subject, Muhammad Ali. I love this series, and it made me think a lot, not just about Ali's complicated legacy, but also how our history gets told and the power that comes with the telling. Millions of Americans have watched Burns' films about America's past, so I wanted to talk to him about how they are framing our present moment and maybe how that should change. Ken Burns, welcome to Sway. Thank you. So at the very start of the Ali documentary, you quoted Norman Mailer, who followed Ali quite closely, as saying he was the very spirit of the 20th century. I'd like to know why you think that is so, if you agree with that. Well, I certainly agree with Norman Mailer. Ali represents the intersection of almost all of the major themes and events of the last half of the 20th century. He is first and foremost sort of the athlete of the 20th century, perhaps the greatest athlete Mm -hmm. of all times. We don't need to have barroom arguments about that. It just is. But he's intersecting with all of the currents of race, of religion, of faith, particularly Islam, or in his case, he joined the Nation of Islam, which was a kind of separatist religious sect. He's interacting with the traditional civil rights movement, which is nonviolent and opposed to it. And he has the Nation of Islam, which is urging separatism as opposed to the main thrust of the civil rights movement, which is integration. So he's at odds in lots of ways. He's representing more a new redefinition of what black manhood uh, means from an earlier generation in which a Joe Lewis or perhaps a better example is a Jackie Robinson uh, is there. He's, he's, he's brash. He's, he's self-confident. I'm cocky. I'm proud. Never talk about who's going to stop me. Well, ain't nobody going to stop me. I am the greatest. He then refuses induction into the United States Army, and he becomes the crux of the, of the whole Vietnam argument, and he's way ahead of everybody else. And uh, I will say directly, no, I will not go 10,000 miles to uh, help or kill innocent people. And then so he loses three and a half years of the prime of his career as the heavyweight champion of the United States and an incredibly divisive period, but then works his way back and he works his way back to the championship twice and then he loses and in losing he wins. By losing, he wins. You're referring to his loss to Frazier, correct? To his first loss to Joe Frazier and then his ability to come back and back and 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 keep— several times. And by finally coming back and reclaiming the title in the rumble in the jungle, as he called it, the big fight in Zaire Mm -hmm. against George Foreman. And it was no—there was no way that he was going to win, no way that he was going to be able to do it. And he wins on guile and intelligence— Thing they said was impossible. 
And he goes back. And it's very, very interesting the way in which even if you've been opposed to him and you've hated him for whatever reason, you're a racist or you've served in Vietnam, you've lost a son in Vietnam, how could this guy not do this? A lot of this is dissolved. And it's more complicated than that in that he uses the language of Jim Crow America to belittle his black opponents, particularly Joe yes. Frazier. Yeah. And yet he begins in his life to have a journey. This is a classic hero story to begin to reconcile all these spare parts and represents— Which he tried to reach out to Joe Frazier. In this case, he called Joe Frazier a gorilla. He made fun of him. Yeah. He did all kinds all of things. All of the stuff. He's ugly. He talks funny. He walks funny. He's, as the scholar Todd Boyd says in the film, you know, he's using the language of a white racist in his description of his opponent. And it's it's a very unfortunate thing, but it's part of this arc of somebody. When he loses to Joe Frazier in his first fight after being away for a while and being terrible to him, he's now this person. He speaks with this calmness about how Everybody has losses. I have to be an example. And the remaining decades of his life are dedicated to a kind of human reconciliation. Though Muhammad Ali is imprisoned in the last decades of his life by Parkinson's disease, he dies the most beloved person on his planet. And that's— mm -hmm. It had made, made that appearance at the Olympics that was so touching. And that, and that begins it. It yeah. was 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. He comes out shaking and whatever. He doesn't want to do it. And, but he comes out, and then all of the tension seems to dissolve. He seems uh, vulnerable to us. And maybe a way to say it, and this is, seems so obvious in a way, we use the word icon. I can't stand that word. He's a mythic figure. And mm -hmm. we invent mythic figures so that the dramas and conflicts that happen with them, their strengths and their weaknesses, the negotiation, the inner wars between those strengths and weaknesses actually define their heroism. But remember, these are basic human things just writ large. So all of us begin to see in him things that we go through. There's areas, though, of his own cruelties. Uh, one is his family. You had his two ex-wives and his children and his brother talking about it. Can you talk a little bit about that? With regard to the women in his life, he has four wives. Uh, he is unfaithful, I believe, at least to the first three. The last one, Lonnie, really kind of cleans up his act in lots of ways not related to that, and I believe he probably was faithful to her. But we have two of the wives, the middle wives, in which the cheating was so painful and they describe it, and yet they never lost their love for him. And I think it was really important to say, you know, particularly today as we wrestle with all of the ways that not only African Americans and Native Americans and other people of color have been kept down, but how how horribly women have been treated across the entire scope of not just American history, but human history in most cases. And so there's a kind of reckoning that has to take place there, which he makes. He, he's very open. He knows that his treatment of women is, has been horrific, and the suffering of his wives are writ on their faces and mm -hmm. in the faces of their children. It was still a great deal of love, which was really interesting. And that's it. And that's why I wanted to go and interrupt the kind of initial dialectic that we always present Muhammad Ali with. Oh, you know, he's a very divisive figure. Right. Yes, it's true. But all the way, running through all of it from the earliest childhood is just this sense that he made you smile with a recognition of what was essentially human. And I love that about him. He knew early on, he says, I'm going to be the greatest. And people are going, you don't even know how to box yet. Yeah. 
But in the end, though, one of the things that was, I think, most gripping is the end is he has this illness, the end, Parkinson's, possibly caused by fighting and its violence. Did you imagine he thought it was worth it? I mean, what was the conclusion that this was the price he paid for this? I wouldn't pretend to say what is in his mind. I think that having chosen this, having reached the heights that he did, having had the experiences, good and bad, that he had with regard to this profession of boxing, he would say yes. And I think he would understand that, of course, it was worth it. This was his path, and he permitted the things, good and bad, to elevate him. And more importantly, I would suggest the reason why you'd ever want to make a film about him is elevate others. Why do you think, uh, in this, talking about Muhammad Ali, because I want to get to some other issues, is why is the story important to tell in this moment? I mean, I love Muhammad Ali, but there are a lot of biographies, quite a few excellent documentaries about him already, yes. movies. Why add one? Why did you think that was important? You're absolutely right. There are lots of wonderful, wonderful documentaries. None of them, though, were interested in the soup to nuts. None of them were interested in going from early, early boyhood in Jim Crow Louisville through all of the parts, a classic biography, to the end. And to your sort of initial question, you know, Mark Twain is supposed to have said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. These stories when we lift up and we finish, are just always rhyming in the present. There's something in Muhammad Ali that you realize, having gathered the threads of this life that begins in the early 1940s and ends in 2016, not too long ago, mm -hmm. is all of the stuff that we're grappling with now. Is embodied that, in this person. Yeah, so Ecclesiastes says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun, which means human nature doesn't change. So anytime you tell a story in the past, you've actually activated the best teacher I know to understand the present because the past offers you these precedents, as I said, or these perspectives. Right. Well, all these things intersect, but you're a white filmmaker telling the story of Muhammad Ali. Should people be concerned the story of one of the most iconic Black Americans is being told by a white guy who lives in New Hampshire? Um, you know what? My beat is American history. And what I've found over the years is that every story, regardless of whether it's obviously this, as Muhammad Ali, is going to intersect in race. I mean, we know when we were founded and we know why we were founded. We know our catechism. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I'm a third of the way through the sentence and you got to stop because the guy who wrote it owned slaves, didn't see the hypocrisy and didn't see the contradiction. And so you can't deal with American history, which is what I'm interested in, in my heart. I cannot not do this without touching on these stories. And so our crew, the people that we work with are as diverse as you could have. The scholars that advise us are that. And so we feel comfortable about telling these complex stories. Mm -hmm. um, now, PBS, your primary distributor and distributor for the Ali documentary, has yeah. come under fire for lack of diversity, as you know, in selection of storytellers. In March, a letter from 140 filmmakers pointed to you specifically. You're obviously the best-known documentary filmmaker there. And the network's, quote, over-reliance on your work. What did you think of that complaint? Um, as I said at the time, I agree wholeheartedly. We can always do better. And PBS is committed, was already committed, and has redoubled its efforts to be committed to that. I, I represent a tiny little bailiwick. I get proportionately less 
percentage of my money from PBS than other filmmakers. I raise all the rest on my own. And so I think this idea that maybe because of the popularity of the films or whatever it is that— Well, that 200 it, hours of programming is a lot, Ken. Yeah, but I've been at it for 40-plus yeah. years. Okay. So, so it's, you know, you're going to accumulate. If you ask how many hours Bill Moyers has, it would be 10 times that amount, right? So, I mean— and, and and let's remember, the guy who spoke before Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address spoke for two hours, and Lincoln spoke for two minutes. It doesn't matter how many hours you have. It's what's in those hours right. or in those minutes. So we're interested in excellence, and if you do something good, people watch it, and maybe that's it. But PBS is doing a lot of good things. We've said, what can we do to help? A lot of the fundraising efforts we do are now directed to helping up and coming filmmakers and filmmakers of color. And obviously, our staff are much more diverse than they might have been in the early days in New Hampshire, as you say. Three of the four editors of Ali were people of color. So was the rest of the staff. The advisors, people in, uh, on camera are dominated by people of color. And so it's, it's I think— do you, do you understand those arguments, though? when they of see course, that? Because you, you do sort of take up a lion's share of the attention. I wouldn't call it take up. We just make films and we work hard at promoting them and they are successful. But they are also addressing the fundamental questions at the heart of the petition. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, fair point. Like, fair why point. is it that this country, founded as it was, still 402 years after Africans were forcibly brought to this continent, still can't get its act together to address it in any meaningful way. And the expression of that outrage absolutely has to come from all different corners. But it also has to come from people like me as well saying, we have to stop getting away with this shit. And it's also time to listen as well. And a good deal of our process is listening to other people. We don't come in with an idea. We don't write a script and then find the talking heads to fit in. Mm -hmm. We permit those talking heads to guide us. So you do a lot of grant funding of your films. That's quite rare in a world where you can get big backers like Netflix to give you multi-project, multi-year deals. I suspect you've been approached by everyone. Why still go after grants? Is it about creative control? It's about creative control, but, you know, with my track record, I could go to a streaming service yes. or a premium cable thing and say, I'm making a film on the Vietnam War. I need $30 million. And I'd walk out of it with $30 million that day. There's just no question about it. But they wouldn't give me 10 and a half years, which is what it took us to make it. Okay. And so what I've said about PBS for years is that it has one foot tentatively in the marketplace and the other proudly out. And that part that's proudly out permits it over the course of its decades to be actually disproportionately committed to underserved communities and listening to voices that aren't usually heard in the mainstream until the mainstream is shamed by events. Let me ask you, have you been, a, you said a particular number, um, have you been approached by Netflix or Hulu or Amazon? Uh, not directly, but I did get approached quite often after the Civil War series came out from other networks and premium cable, right? And I wasn't really flirting with leaving PBS because I've understood this dynamic from the very beginning. One of the first grants I got from a, a local humanities group said, and you know, you have to offer it first to PBS for free. And I went, Okay, like that. If I'm going to get your 25000 back then it was like 25000 was like a windfall. Yeah, of course, go to PBS. And then I understood I hadn't made some devil's bargain going from the small audiences of film festivals. 
I died and gone to heaven. I, sh- I made the screen smaller, which is disappointing, but I'm suddenly talking about tens of millions of human beings. And you're talking about 10 years. Time is what you want. If they handed you $30 million, you'd prefer time. Look, it's true of everything. All real meaning accrues in duration. The work you're proudest of benefited from sustained attention. It's true for me. It's true for you. It's true for every listener. And yet we live in a culture that is, it feeds more the transitory. So you're a slow cooker, Ken. (laughs) We have to be. It's barbecue. It's a big brisket. Okay, barbecue. So I was going to say, it feels like there's an urgency of consumption nowadays. The consumption level has moved up fast. News breaks. Yeah, but it's interesting. All the way through my professional life, people would say, oh, well, you know, Civil War is really great, but nobody's going to watch it. MTV, two and a half minute videos. And they did watch it. Same thing about baseball and about jazz and about World War II and about the national parks. But they didn't say it about the Roosevelts. And I haven't said it about Vietnam or country music or anything else we've done because they understand that our habits of changed. And all of a sudden, with streaming and binging, the long form actually provides people with a certain amount of breathing room, the tsunami of information that we get. The notion is that to give yourself over to narrative in in that environment is difficult. But once you submit to narrative, then you've got people who are willing to invest in that thing. Now, maybe I didn't watch The Wire the way my co-director, my daughter, Sarah Burns did, but I've watched Homeland and I know every single season and episode of that. But may, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to throw out some documentaries. I'm curious if you've watched them. Cue Into the Storm on HBO Max. No. You didn't watch that. ESPN's The Last Dance about Michael Jordan. No. The New York Times documentary Framing Britney Spears. Yes. Saw that. What did you think? I thought it was good. I just don't have time. Yeah. So so it's not that I don't like. You just said Homeland. Let me try Tiger King. Uh, No. You don't strike me as a Tiger King guy. You'd be surprised. I watch a lot of feature films. What's on your watch list? What is on your Netflix watch list? Well, I watch, I, first of all, I'm a news junkie. So I waste or I occupy a lot of time following the news. I'm also a baseball nut. So I watch baseball games and probably spend way too much time watching it. But I will defend that forever. And then I like dramas because the same laws of storytelling apply to documentary as they do to Steven Spielberg. And so I'm always interested in how you negotiate the conventions of plot and how then they apply to us where there are no real conventions of plot and how you sometimes consciously and more often than not unconsciously superimpose classic plot structure onto stuff that doesn't necessarily have it, like life. So you mentioned Homeland. What else? Mayor of Easton? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. And if I don't watch The Wire, Sarah's going to kill me. What's the weirdest thing Ken Burns is watching? I will like, and my second daughter, Lily, she and I love the same sort of just like a Matt Damon espionage, a Bourne thing, or, you know, even we'll watch a Steven Seagal until we recently learned some stuff about it. And so I'm a filmmaker because my dad, after my mom died after a long illness when I was 11, my dad let me stay up late at night and watch feature films. And I watched, you know, unbelievable things. I saw my dad cry for the first time at Odd Man Out by Sir Carol Reed about the Irish Trouble. It's a wonderful film. And and I decided then watching him cry, not cried at the sickness, not cried at the death, not at the funeral, that I wanted to do that. And that meant being John Ford and Alfred Hitchcock or Francois Truffaut or Jean-Luc Godard, all this stuff. I had a great education until I walked into Hampshire College and they were all social documentary still photographers reminding me quite correctly that there is as much drama in what is and was, was as anything the human imagination makes up. That means you don't dismiss that. I just invested fully in trying to take what 
has happened or what is happening and try to fashion it in a dramatic way that will move me and therefore I hope my audience. Right, right. But I'm not going to forget that you said Steven Seagal because nobody is beyond the law. Nobody is no, no, beyond no, the no, law. I know. I, I, that is just I, a hop, skip and a jump to Jean-Claude Van Damme. You know that. Obviously, maybe the most perfect film made, the most perfect feature film made, and I don't mean the best, is Die Hard. I mean, that first Die Hard movie, it it is a perfect movie. And I have lots of other perfect movies. I think Moneyball and Capote by my friend Bennett Miller are just like perfect films. There's nothing you would change, not a shot that's off, not anything's wrong. And they're they're great, great movies, you know? So Yeah, yeah. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Anyway, um, so (laughs) you don't have to say that. Oh, we get to say that, right? Yeah, we can say that. Yeah, oh yeah. No, yippee yo kaye, motherfucker. No, and it's great. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, no, no. It's 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 fabulous. (laughs) It's a good movie. Yeah, everything about it. God, we have a lot in common, Ken. That's disturbing. (laughs) Why is that disturbing? (laughs) It's great. We're all looking for common humanity. I'm coming up there. You and I are going to Top Gun together. (laughs) I feel that you and I need to go in the movie theater mask, even if we're vaccinated. Go see Top Gun too. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Spike Lee, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Ken Burns after the break. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing and expanding education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com slash starts. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. If you had to pick like a tech figure right now, because they're being, they're so big in history, if 20, 30 years hence, or even 100 years hence, who would you pick right now? Of who's going to be big? Yeah. Who do you think would be the version of Muhammad Ali in 100 years? I don't. Stacey Abrams. She's the person who has the closest chops to being somebody that we could carve into Mount Rushmore. All right. She's the real deal. I mean, I hope Zuckerberg is in jail, you know, by then. You know, you know, this is an enemy of the state. 
and I mean the United States of America. He doesn't give a shit about us. The United States, he knows he can transcend it. He can get away to any place. And so it's just about filthy lucre. That's it. You know, and a lot of people... You're going to love my memoir, Ken. (laughs) I'm sure I am because these people... And Cheryl is a complicit, you know, she's... The Nuremberg of this is, if it ever happens, which it won't, will be pretty interesting. You know, the way that we've been able to... um, temporize and say, oh, it's okay. We'll just go a little bit further, Yeah. right? Yeah. So let me finish up talking about deep fake uh, and, and tech and things like that. So documentary filmmaker has some overlap with journalism, obviously. What you've done is journalism here. And many documentary filmmakers see themselves as journalists. Do you think of yourself that way? I don't, but I do believe many of the of the disciplines, the inner disciplines and the exposed outer disciplines apply to us. You know, we feel bound by the scholarly rules that apply perhaps even more stringently to scholarly work, but also by elemental journalistic standards. And I do think we're in a territory, particularly now with all of the tools and and the tricks that we have, where these moral dilemmas are constantly going to come up. So let's talk about that, because I would say you're a purist approach to your craft, but technology opens up all kinds of new avenues and new ethical questions. Now, for example, Oscar-winning director Morgan Neville recently drew criticism when his documentary Roadrunner used an AI model of Anthony Bourdain's voice to say words that he wrote but never recorded. He didn't disclose it because it was basically an audio deepfake created after Bourdain died in 2018. How do you look at something like this? Well, first of all, I haven't seen the film, so I am completely unqualified to talk about it or pass judgment. But I've, of course, heard the controversy and the conversations about it. Right, but you can understand it. Is this something you would— I, uh, you know, first of all, there are two things to me. One is I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't take FDR's speech and run it through some computer algorithm that permits you to say the only thing we have to fear is— you know, isolationist, you know, itself, right? I mean, think about it. Now, here he was recreating, as I understand it, stuff that had been written. He wrote it. But had not been, been spoken. Yes. So he the, used AI yeah. to use words. I, I'm very, very, very troubled by it because that leads to the second thing, which is we respect Neville. Uh, Morgan is just an extraordinary filmmaker and it's really, really great. And he's sort of on our side, right? What happens when somebody is creating this, Kara, that puts words in your mouth and says the opposite of what you believe. And that's already happening. And so he needs to, I believe, the thing would be to say at the beginning of the film, some disclaimer that says some of this was this, or probably better than kind of setting the audiences ajar and having to wonder what is true, that just when that is playing, you say, recreated AI conversation from written material superimposed over it. We're always doing stuff like that. The Nazis made a propaganda film about how happy the Jews were in concentration camps. We fought for years about whether we'd even use the footage. And then we realized, yes, we could use the footage, but only if we stamped it with Nazi propaganda right, film. Right, so being clear. And and had the narrator speaking that this is, you know, their version of a Potemkin village of how wonderful it is for 
the peasants. Sure. You know? So you have to make and it clear. This is abhorrent stuff. It's just like the problem we're having in our film. We're working on the Holocaust now. You do not want to privilege the perpetrators. And at the same time, they've got good footage. Right. right? Which is difficult. And that's a difficult moral dilemma. So that's why it's so important for us at whatever level, at whatever, oh, this is harmless. I believe filmmakers should be pushing the boundaries and experimenting. My dear friend Werner Herzog, you know, he blows through a lot of stop signs that I come to a full stop and look both ways before I then decide, hmm, I'm not even going to go down that road. So this idea of reenactment or virtual reality. Yeah, we can do all that stuff. You know, I mean, Werner's got this great film where he's gone to this place where uh, monks in Russia are supposed to crawl out over the lake and prostate and so the ice covered lake and do this stuff. And he gets there. They're all on a trip. So he goes to the bar and he pays these guys to do it. For him, that's fine. I could never do that and go to bed at night. But that's not technology. Now, technology can do that even more. That's right. But all of these are steps up the ladder where you're beginning. Steps up the ladder. So let me give you some examples. Some filmmakers are toying with virtual reality. For example, the New Yorker duck, uh, Reeducated, takes people inside a detention camp. In China, it's virtual reality. It's VR, the future of documentary storytelling. No, storytelling is the future of storytelling. And how we do it will constantly be changing as technology permits us to change. But just remember, and and I'm somebody who, purist may be the thing, I didn't move to computer editing for 10 years after my colleagues had. I didn't leave film until 10 years after that, although most of my colleagues had abandoned for digital, because I did not want the technological tail to wag the dog. That's the problem just with my own dynamic. But we have, in this conversation and obviously in the conversation we've been having for the last few weeks about this, we've got all also a Pandora's box. So it's old-fashioned. I'll plead to being old-fashioned in storytelling, but I also think you just have to be careful about what you do. And this doesn't apply to just these, you know, lovely little expositions and films that occupy us, but, you know, somebody could change your credit card bill to say that you bought this pornography or you visited this motel 20 times or, you know, that you traveled someplace where you never traveled. I mean, we're on the cusp of some very serious problems with AI, along with, I assume, potential benefits. Maybe getting into a Chinese detention center is one of those benefits in being able to recreate it if you can't find out what they're doing. So we have to look at it. And as each case comes up. Let me ask, is there one technology that scares you? Yeah, I think this AI stuff, I think this ability to turn something into it. I watched that film Gemini Man, in which they had a kind of more younger version of Will Smith. That kind of thing, I found myself looking at it when I finally read and realized what it was and looking at it and wondering, yikes, what in the hands of real malevolence does that go? But I think what we're talking about today, and I'm a little bit worried about this, and I hope that in future instances, we'd come to some agreed upon thing that we signal in some way that these types of manipulations have taken place. Is there one thing that you're excited about, a new technology? Is it VR? Is it... uh, I'm still thrilled about photography. Photography. It's 1839. It's really great, Kara. I heartily recommend it, and it hasn't exhausted its potentialities. So Ken Burns is sticking with photography. I just think there's a part of our restlessness and then our deep, deep unhappiness that we always have to go and get the new thing and rip the, the thing off. And that's, I just think, coming back and being able to talk about things like story and love and human beings and their complexity. You know, I'll just say I've been making films about the U.S. for more than 40 years, but I've also been making films about us. That is to say, 
the two-letter lowercase plural pronoun and all of the intimacy of us and all of the majesty and the complexity and the contradiction and the controversy of the U.S. And that I could spend a thousand years, Kara, and not run out of stories. All right. Well, on that note, I think we'll end. Ken, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Me too. Thank you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Caitlin O'Keefe, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naeem Araza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Liriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, we promise that it floats like a bee and stings like a butterfly. I think I got that wrong. Download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.